Our passage today is the one I dealt with in part last week. Isaiah chapter 40 is in your worship guide. Isaiah chapter 40, and I'm going to start reading in verse 27 with the complaint of those people who are in the Babylonian exile. They've been taken from their homeland, the Jews, and taken to Babylon. It's going to be a seven-year exile. This was written to them in the midst of that prophet, prophetically looking ahead to that time, book of Isaiah. So he writes to this discouraged and disillusioned people who are saying, where is God in all of this? Has he disregarded us? So, verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Isaiah responds, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall grow faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the background, of course, the people are in the Babylonian captivity. The system they had trusted in seemingly had failed them. And they are mired in hopelessness, despair, and mediocrity. They've given up. Therefore, the complaint of verse 27, where is God? Has, has he disregarded us? Has he forgotten us? And Isaiah answers them with a strong statement about, behold the character of God. Behold the God who invites you to fellowship and replenishment and renewal. Wait upon him. Look to him. And so my, my, my issue as I look at this is, is how, how do we go into the new year encouraged, strengthened, escaping from the clutches of mediocrity? I ask myself, are, are we have the same spirit as those who've gone before us? Do we have the same sacrifice and roll up our sleeves and get it done type of attitude? I don't want to have a nostalgia for the past, but sometimes I think, quite frankly, that my generation is lacking. There's an article that I read three months ago by one of my favorite writers, a man named Victor Davis Hanson, who's a has been a professor of classics at Stanford University in Cal State Fullerton for several decades. And a very good writer, and he wrote an article entitled, How We Pale to Previous Generations. I'm just going to read three or four paragraphs. He says, a distant generation created, we mostly delay, idle, and gripe. Now, Dr. Hansen is a Californian by birth and heritage. He's never left the state, so he can take some statements, some broad swipes of this statement, and he does. I'm going to read a couple of those comments. He says, does anyone really believe that contemporary Americans could build another transcontinental railroad in six years. Californians tried to build a high-speed rail line, but after more than a decade of government incompetence, lawsuits, cost overruns, and constant bureaucratic squabbling, they've given up. The result is a half-built overpass over the skyline of Fresno, and not one foot of track has been laid. 
Where are those giants of the 1960s responsible for building our incredible interstate highway system? California's roads today are most of the same as they were when we inherited them in 1965. Although the state population has tripled, we have added little to our freeway network, either because we forgot how to build good roads or would prefer to spend the money on redistributive entitlements. When California had to replace a quarter section of the Golden Gate Bridge that was damaged in the earthquake, it turned out to be a near disaster. With 11 years of acrimony, fighting and cost overruns and a commentary on our decline, and yet 82 years ago our ancestors built a, a bridge four times the length that we had to repair, and they did it in a mere four years. Our generation required five years just to plan to replace one single section. In inflation-adjusted dollars, we spent six times the money on one quarter of the length of the bridge and required 13 agencies to grant approval in 1936 when the Golden Gate Bridge opened. Just one agency oversaw the entire bridge project. America went to the moon in 1969. With supposedly primitive computers and backward engineering, does anyone really believe that we could launch a similar moonshot today? No American has set foot on the moon the last 47 years, and it may not happen in the next 50 years. And then he closes with this statement, or I will. In terms of learning, does anyone believe that a college graduate in 2020 will know half the information of a 1950 graduate? Now, I, I can just say, I don't know. I'm, I can be Switzerland in this because I graduated right in the middle of all that. He says, true, social media is very impressive. The Internet gives us instant access to global knowledge. We are a more tolerant society, at least in theory. But Facebook is not Hoover Dam, and Twitter is not the Panama Canal. Our ancestors were builders and pioneers and mostly fearless. We are regulators, auditors, bureaucrats, censors, critics, plaintiffs, defendants, social media junkies, and thin-skinned scolds. A distant generation created, we mostly delay, idle, and gripe. Now, I don't know how, much, how true that is. I think some of it's very true. But as I, as I read this passage in Isaiah, it tells me as a believer how to escape the clutches of mediocrity, how to go forward, how to be forward thinking, how to live with expectation. You see, when the Bible says here, these, those who wait upon the Lord, the word wait means to look to the Lord in expectation and hope. He says, look, people trapped in Babylon. He said, even at, at this very nadir of your existence, look to the Lord. Look up. Wait upon the Lord. Look to Him. Trust in Him. Be people who go forward in, with hope and don't faint. Don't grow weary. Be encouraged. So, so how do we escape mediocrity? In 1910, one of my favorite presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, a year after he left office, gave an address in Paris to 2,000 people who bought tickets to hear the president speak at the Sorbonne, and he gave an address that was entitled, after he gave the address, The Man in the Arena. And by the time he finished, people were standing and clapping with great passion. I would have been too. In fact, you can read a biography of a 20th century president. Read about Teddy Roosevelt. What a guy. I mean, really. 
But in part, he said in the speech, the, the purest way to face life is not with a sneer. And then he went on to say this. It's two paragraphs. Let me read it. It is so good. I mean, this, this statement will put starch in your diet. You don't put starch in your diet. It'll put protein in your diet. It'll put metal down your spine. It is it's good stuff. Listen, just listen to this. It is not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, where his face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without errors and shortcomings. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms and great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end of the triumph of high achievement? And who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly? So that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. Close quote. You fail, you fail daringly. You fail daring greatly. I, I read this, I go, I, that and I read with Isaiah. I said, Isaiah teaches me how to avoid the clutches of mediocrity. We live in an age, brothers and sisters, my opinion, where we've settled for far less than what the Lord would have us to do. We're, we're, we're content to just kind of get along. And the Lord says, press into the wind. The scripture says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Second Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth where the Lord will make himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are really committed unto him. So, so I, I, I read this and I, I say, Lord, let this be true. So today I'm going I'm to, again, kind of put out the framework of this house. In the next four to five weeks, I'm going to tell you the different rooms to put in the house so that in God's providence, we can soar like eagles instead of fainting and growing weary. It's called the means of grace. I want to mention several things. But first, just the, the, the framework of this house out of this passage. Three things. Number one, if I am to be a person who is refreshed in my spirit and I go strong, I've got to progressively know the character of of God. Isaiah, in responding to the, to the question, where is God in all this, says, have you not heard? Or have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. In other words, he is the eternal God, who is the creator God. He has no beginning and he, he has no end. He spoke the world into being. He is all-powerful. He doesn't faint or grow weary. We do. He doesn't. And his understanding is limitless. And we have part of that wisdom here. He says, behold the greatness and the glory and the character of God. There's a little book called Knowing God by a man named J.I. Packer. It's going to be a 20th century classic if the Lord tarries. It already is a classic but he's got a section in there about the people who know their God. And Packer, this Anglican who is brilliant and still alive and writing, is amazing. He's in his 90s. 
Packer says there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. He says you can know about God because you can read the Scripture and you can think about it and you can read good books. But, there, but, but then when the Holy Spirit really grips your heart, you know God. And he says and when you know God, you're a person who has great thoughts about God. You have great energy regarding the things of the Lord. You have zeal for God and you have contentment. And he goes to a place of, 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 that I wouldn't go to in Daniel 11. And he compares and he contrasts contrast two types of people. And he says in Daniel 11 verse 21, there's a statement about, about a, a false teacher. And he says, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He's a usurper. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. He just flatters people. He, he tells you what you want to hear. There's no truth in his spirit. Conversely, verse 32 of the same chapter, it says, as compared to him who shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and do valiantly. They stand firm and they take action. They go forward. And Packer says this, and it's a Syrian statement that plunges into your heart. He says, the difference between knowing God and knowing about God is this. It's measured by how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. So, if I'm to mount up with wings as eagles, if you are to, if you're to run and not grow weary and not faint, you've got to have great thoughts about God, progressively know the character of God. In the book of Philippians, there's a man who knew the, 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 the canons, the law of God, frontwards and backwards. He was a Pharisee among the Pharisees. When it came to zeal, he was persecuting the church. His name was Paul. And when he encountered Jesus and saw the grace of the cross, this is what this man said. His zeal was totally turned around. He says in chapter 3, verse 8 and following, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as refuse, garbage, dung, dung. I count them as nothing in order that I may gain Christ. He says, you know, I've been turned out. I've been left for dead. I've been persecuted. I've been stoned. I'm going to be shipwrecked, snake bit. That I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from observing the law, but that which comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. See, see, how much we make of God in our hearts, how we pray. There's a little statement in the bulletin from the Gospel Coalition, it's a confessional statement, and I put it in there not as a filler, but just let me just read one sentence, two sentences, regarding the character of God. He perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning. Behold your God. He sustains and sovereignly rules over all things and providentially brings about his eternal good purposes to redeem a people for himself and to restore his fallen creation. He is redeeming us and he's restoring us to the place he wants us to be. 
by his Holy Spirit. Wow. And so I look at this and I go, behold the greatness of God. See, this Tuesday is the first Tuesday of the new year. And so the last few months, the staff has thought, and I, I agree that it's good to have just a day of prayer and fasting. And so we ask you to have a 24-hour period where you don't eat, uh, if you can, medically, and, and, and then we're going to come together here at 6.30 on Tuesday just to pray. But see, fasting in the Bible is saying, God, I see, but I want to see more. God, thank you for using me, but use me more. God, I want to be focused on Christ and dead to myself, but make it more so. It's saying, Holy Spirit, fresh oil. It is the cry of the child of God who says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in me. It shows a deadly seriousness on our part. One of my favorite plays is by a guy named Shakespeare, is Henry V. It's a great play. There's some great lines in it. The background is that the British army has gone to fight the French. They're in France. True story. It's the year 1415. The British army is wracked by dysentery. They're weak. And we think historically that it may have been six to one. 36,000 French soldiers, 6,000 Brits. It may have been closer to four to one, but it was, the odds were incredible. And 80%, 60 to 80% of the British soldiers were not sword dashing. They were longbowmen, which doesn't, longbowmen don't do much good in hand-to-hand combat. It's hard to fight a sword with a bow. And so in the play, there is this warrior king, and it's true in history, a guy named Henry V, who was king for only 11 years. So in the play... Uh, Westmoreland, his cousin, says, I wish we had more people here. And Henry jumps up on a stump and says, no, no, my cousin. By Jove, no. He says, I'm glad there aren't more men here because when we win, the glory will rest upon us. He said, in fact, if you don't want to be here, I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version. If you don't want to be here, we will give you a token to get across the channel and a passport. Uh, go, go, because the glory will rest upon us. And, And the story is that they won a sweeping, incredible victory. They swept the field. It was one of the greatest victories in the history of British warfare because the longbowmen But in, 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 the, in the play, Henry says this. And it just, he says, he says this. He says, If it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. He said, my gold, you can have my money. My clothes, you can wear my clothes. But I I want honor. And if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. And I read that and I thought, you know, may we cry out, God, if, if it, if it, may we covet the glory of Jesus in our lives, our church, our city, our nation, our world. May we covet the glory of Jesus to shine through us to the people we're trying to communicate Jesus to, our, our three. 
May, may, may the glory of Jesus shine through us. May we covet that. As that happens, as you progressively get to know the character of God, I need, you need to know God. Number two, to be people who soar, the frame. We must understand that life is short and that we are creatures depend upon the Creator. In Isaiah 40, they, he says to Isaiah, cry out a message. Isaiah says, Why should I cry out? And he says, well, first of all, cry out, <clears throat> repent. And after you cry that out, cry this out. He says, cry out to them. All flesh is grass and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So that, that's what you cry out. You, you cry out that, that, that life is, is, is short versus permanent things. You, you cry out that, that, that the time is running by. It's kind of counterintuitive, but listen, listen to me. If you want to soar with wings as eagles, if you want to be refreshed in your spirit, and you come before the living God and you say, God, you are the great creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every breath I take is a gift from you. Forgive me for buying into the silliness of affirming 15,000 things about me. It's all about you. Psalm 30 is a, is a general psalm of worship. This is what the psalmist says. It's a psalm written by David for general worship. And he says this. First of all, he talks about what God has done. He says, for to you, you have drawn me up. Verse 2, you have helped me. You have healed me. Amen. We can say that. Verse 3, you have brought up my soul from Sheol or the gates of death, and you have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Every child of God has been a believer very long can say, Lord, you, you, you have drawn me up. You've brought me to yourself. You have helped me. You've healed me. You've, you've restored my life from times of destruction and depression. And he says, in response to that, sing praises to the Lord, verse 4. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. We may tarry for a night, but joy comes in the morning. In other words, the psalmist says that there, there are times of weeping because of sin or because of brokenness around us. But joy is always there. And then he says this. It's a kind of an autobiographical sketch. As for me, listen. I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Close quote. He says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. So he starts off by saying, God, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. And, and, and then he says, he says, Lord, in my arrogance, in my prosperity, I just got a good report from the doctor. Life was sweet. Stock return, 29, 30% this year. And I said in my prosperity, I've got it together. I shall never be moved. Then he says this, Lord, <laughs> You hid your face for a moment, and I was undone. I was undone. See, if I'm going to soar, I've got to realize that life is short. 
And I've got to realize that the creature depends upon the creator. The book of James in the New Testament talks about a mindset about planning goals, planning and making plans, goals, and thinking ahead. And that's a good and noble thing to do to a degree. James chapter 3, or James chapter 4, excuse me, verse 13 says, Come now, you say, today or tomorrow I'll do this and I'll do that. I'll go to town, I'll spend a year there and make a trade, make a profit. And then James says, you, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. <laughs> what is your life? You're a mist. Appears for a little while, vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I mean, one of the refreshing things when I've been to an alcohol anonymous meeting is people stand up and they'll say many times, by the grace of God, I've been sober six years and ten weeks in five days. By the grace of God, I've been sober for 20 years. By the grace of God, and, and, and that, that's refreshing. And you know, people, uh, not, not to be overly redundant, but really, we should say, by the grace of I'm going to be, soon I'll be married 40 years this summer. By the grace of God, we've been married 40 years. By the grace of God, our children are grown. By the grace of God, we're able to love our grand. By the gra grace of God, my health is okay. See, it's, it's everything I have and do am is dependent upon the goodness of the Lord. I read this book every January. This is what, I read about three books every January, every year. And this is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's, it's wonderful. Let me just read a paragraph regarding this. This is the chapter on sexual morality. And Lewis says this, and I think it's so profound. He says, For however important sexual purity or courage or truthfulness or any other virtue may be, this process trains us in habits of the soul which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. What a great sentence. It teaches us our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend upon the Lord. We learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, and on the other hand that we need not despair even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing to do is to sit down and be content with anything less than the Lord has asked. And then he says this. It's a next page, and I just think it's a great line. He says, virtue, even attempted virtue, brings light. Indulgence brings fog. Amen. He said, you know, it's just it's amazing that God uses these things in our life, that we're totally dependent upon the Lord. 
The, the third thing that we must understand is that as we come to the Lord, that, that we serve a God who invites and empowers and replenishes us. I, I love this passage. I just, I, I think about it. So in Isaiah 40, it's a new section. Isaiah 40 to 66 is considered a new section of Isaiah. And, and he, he's talking about the glory and the power of God. And he says in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? He says in verse 16 or 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And recounted as dust on the scales. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. Verse 22, uh, he stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them the tent, spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Behold your God. And in the midst of all that, he says, This it's just behold the great king. And then he says, verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather his lambs in his arm and he'll carry them in his bosom. Isn't that, isn't that wild? He weighs the nations in a balance, they're dropping the bucket and yet he comes along and he carries us in his arms. It's amazing. And then he talks about the creator God, everlasting God, untiring God, God all wise, and then he says this, and it blows my mind. This God who is eternal and the creative God, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men will fall down exhausted. But those who wait upon the Lord renew their strength. It's, it's amazing. I, I go, this great creator God who weighs the nations on a scale as if they're dust, who, who says that all the nations are dropping the bucket, who is also the glorious creator God empowers us, invites us, and replenishes us. Now, if I got a phone call today and this man said, I'm going to be at the Atlanta airport this week. Can you please come? I'd like to spend the afternoon just with you, the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama is the spiritual leader of the Tibetan people. He's the 14th Dalai Lama. Supposedly, a spirit invades the little baby, and he's, he's been, I think he's been a man of incredible uh, integrity and uh, insight. Uh, the people of Tibet call him their savior. As I had a chance to sit with him, I'd say, I appreciate the fact that you've been a man of great ethical standards, but I want you to know there's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. You're a gifted man, but you're not the Savior. But I'd love to spend time with the Dalai Lama. That probably will not happen. But I'd be honored if he did. If, if this guy called me and said, listen, on Wednesday we're going to New Orleans. We've got a football game next week. I said, okay. He said, but I, I'd like to drive to Charleston, take you to lunch, and just, I've heard you're a great football mind. And I'd like for you to tell us how to slow down that LSU offense. Are you free? I said, I think I can make room in my calendar for you, Dabo. Come on down. I'd be honored. Really, I'd be, I'd be honored. I met somebody before church, and I said, where do you go to school? He says, LSU. I said, please don't tell anybody that. We're not responsible for any harm that would come to you physically for people like that. Or if this guy and this couple called up, I said, hey, Kanye said, I'm, you know, I'm New in the Lord, I'm trying to develop my theology, and I'd like for you, I've heard you're very gifted musically. Well, 
Not many people know that because it's not true. But anyway, uh, I've heard your gift in music, and I want to come on down, and can you kind of show me how to, how to make it better? And I said, man, I'd be honored to hang out with you. Or, or the other couple, you know, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. They just did a movie last year called A Star's Born. It's a depressing uh, but powerful movie, uh, but the music is glorious. Oh, the music is great. We're going to do another movie where we want you and your musical ability to tell us how to do it a little bit better. Come on down. We'll go to lunch. I'd be honored. You know, really, with the, I, I'd be honored. That, that would be really something to, to, you know, take a picture of and put it on Facebook if I ever did something like that. But, but you know, that type of thing. Hear this. The God of the universe who has no beginning and who has no end, who's the creator, everlasting, unwearied, God of all wisdom, desires to replenish, refresh, build, and have fellowship with you by the work of the cross. That is five million times better than having a lunch with all of that group at one time at any restaurant. Think about it. So, so, so really, when, when I get up in the morning, I, I, I go to Hebrews 11.6. I think about Hebrews 11.6. I get up in the morning. It's been time of the Word. That's what I do. And so I, I get up and I go, the Bible says in Hebrews 11.6 that without faith it's impossible to please the Lord. Forever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. And so I say, God, I'm up. I want you to reward me as I seek you. Reward me in insight, reward me in power for living, reward me in being used of you, reward me in letting me be loving to those around me. Lord, I expect that because you say in your word that's what you do. You see, one reason you're here on the Lord's day is because the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy in part. Another reason you're sitting here on the Lord's day is because you really believe, I hope, that as you worship with other people, before God, under the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Scripture, God refreshes His people. You should come here on Sunday and say, Lord, refresh me for the journey. When, you, when you're walking obedience, you're saying, God, I believe you are and that you build your people. Man, that excites me. So, in Romans chapter Excuse me, Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, as he's talking to the church at Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever opens the door will have fellowship with me. It's a statement to the church. The problem with the church at Laodicea is that it had a, a very good run. They were doing well. And they were running around saying, yeah, we follow Jesus, but in reality, we've got it all together. Glad to have him around, but we got it together. And Jesus says, you know, I'm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth because in reality you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you have no clothes. <laughs> so so, so to me, I look at this and I go, to have fellowship with God, I, I've got to realize I'm needy. He's all-powerful. And as I come to him, he replenishes, he refreshes. He invites me to come. There's a statement or a passage in the bulletin from Isaiah 64. It says this, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, 
No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Wow. Who look to him, who trust him, who believe him. I was reading through Proverbs this week and I was struck with the opening chapter. And chapter 1 says this. It's, a, it's an invitation. The writer of Proverbs says, I'm calling out to the simple. Come and get wisdom. Simple are people who need to understand life. You know? And then later in Proverbs, verse 32, it says this. It says, the simple are killed by turning away. Now, turning away means you, you just ignore God. You just do your thing. You just, and, and the Scripture says you're, you're killed. I mean, you, you, you go from bad to worse. Then it says, and the, listen, the, the complacency of fools destroys them. Complacent people are people who say, well, I know that's what the Scripture says, but hey, I'm going here. I mean, here's the path that Jesus says I should walk on. But I'm going here. Here. I'm just going. I'm just going to do my own thing. He says, "Hey, the complacency of fools what destroys them." Then he says this in the next verse. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure. <laughs> whoever listens to me will be at ease without dread of disaster. That's what I want. All all the Scripture, all the Scripture is an invitation to taste and follow the goodness of the Lord because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied and refreshed and built up in Him. So how do we escape the clutches of mediocrity? We progressively know the character of God. We understand that Life is short, and we need His grace daily. And we are people who understand that He invites, empowers, and replenishes us. So the next few weeks, I'm going to talk about uh, about um, a passage from that is fleshed out that comes from maybe Proverbs 24. This says this, or 24, 3 and 4. By wisdom, a house is built. By Understanding it is established in my knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. NIV says, rare and beautiful treasures. As this year approaches, um, let me tell you this. To me, going forward is like rowing a boat. Going to life. Especially if you've been around a few years. You can do this. Really. Two or three years. You've been in faith two or three years. So when you row a boat, you don't, you, you don't look ahead. You look behind. See? And there are people. I've got two pictures up here. Really, one picture. The picture over here, a guy's kind of on a. Placid Lake. Mm. Other way, that guy's rowing into a storm. Some of us, 2020, you will row into a storm. Health, death of loved ones, difficult times. 
But as you row, you look retrospectively and you sing, great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with, with you. You change not your compassions, they fail not. As you have been, you forever will be. The faithful God who's carried you for 15, 20, 30, 50, 70 years will carry you still. He's the shepherd who carries you in his bosom. And because of that, we can go to sleep at night. That's why the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism and the New City Catechism says this, what is your only hope in life and death? My only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in death and in life, to my precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will see me through the storm. Behold the faithfulness of God. Brothers and sisters, let us escape the clutches of mediocrity by being people who focus afresh on the greatness of the triune God. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this day, um, as we begin a new year, we ask that you would work in us, that we would not be people who settle for less than what you've called us to do. That as we, are, as we fall and stumble, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, let us get up off the canvas and get back in the fight. And let us learn and go forward with scraped knees and bloody chins. Let us go forward. I, I thank you that you are a great and glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I thank you. I praise you that we can know you as we study the Bible by the power of the Spirit. I thank you. I praise you that you tell us repeatedly that life is a gift, but it's short. And that the best way to live life is to understand that you are the creator and we are made in your image. Therefore, our lives run best when we run on the track you've made for us. Thank you you've not left us to live willy-nilly with no sense of right and wrong. So let us hear you in the word. Let our conscience be inflamed. And I thank you, Lord, that you invite us with tenderness. You, great creator God, I can't believe it. Great creator God, by the power of the cross, you invite us to be refreshed and renewed under your hand. So lead us, I pray, in 2020. May this be a year that's marked with your gladness and goodness and that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, in our homes, in our lives, in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.